Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dwayne, if I've not had the chance to meet you yet. I'm one of the pastors here at the District Church. Um, we preach through books of the Bible here at the District, and right now we are preaching through the book of Acts, and we are in Acts chapter 20. And so if you have a Bible, um, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. If you do not have a Bible, usually those are around, but we did not put those out today. Uh, our hospitality team's out of town, so it's all right. Um, you can just look on with somebody who's close to you if they have a Bible. And if you don't own one and you want one, um, you can just raise a hand, throw it up, and we'll chuck one at you. Jordan's going to grab a couple of them in the back back there. Or you can also just pick one up on your way out. That's our gift to you. Uh, but Acts chapter 20, uh, we're going to start off in... Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, but primarily focusing on verses 7 through 12. And so I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of context, just kind of paraphrasing for you uh, verses 1 through 6 here. Um, we've essentially left uh, what was a riot in Ephesus. And so last week we looked at the gospel being planted in Ephesus and there just being this huge riot that happened there because the majority of people were turning over uh, their lives to Jesus, and therefore they were no longer trusting in kind of what the culture trusted in, which was Greek goddesses and, and God's kind of Greek mythology within Ephesus. No longer were they putting their trust in that, which also meant that the economic driver of the city, which was the manufacturing of these idols... Um, no longer were people buying these, no longer were people putting hope in these, no longer were the supply and demand was kind of beginning to wane there. And so um, ultimately the, the silversmith within the city got other silversmiths in the city together and came and, and basically started spreading the word, get everybody into the theater and let's create a big riot in order to try to win back everyone uh, to kind of team Artemis uh, which was the Greek goddess of hunting and fertility. And so um, everyone wanted her to be kind of on the throne and no longer Jesus because Jesus was kind of the new king in the city that everybody was worshiping. And so we saw this big riot happen. Um, and then from there, Paul set sail and left from Ephesus and headed back into Macedonia. This was him kind of rounding out his third missionary journey back through Macedonia, where he was just encouraging the brothers there, encouraging the churches that he had already planted. He lands in Greece. He spends about three months in Greece just encouraging, reasoning in the synagogues, teaching people the gospel. Again, gets met by opposition in Greece. Um, it's pretty much exactly like every city, as we're kind of walking through, is the same M.O., Paul comes into the city, goes into the synagogue, reasons with the Jews, tries to win them over to Christ. They get upset. They want to kind of bring some opposition against him. And then it pushes him out of the city. And he just continues going and preaching the gospel city to city. To city. He then sets sail from Greece back through Macedonia with a community of believers joining him. You can read all of their names there um, in verses 4, 5, and 6. And then he lands in a city called Troas, and that's where we will pick up uh, today. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. So I'm going to start reading there. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, 
to break bread. I also want you to see something unique here too. This is Luke now having, again, eyewitness. There's been a couple of times where Luke refers to they went here, they went there. That's just him interviewing people, getting kind of the feedback from what they were doing in those cities. And then you also see at times Luke move to a first-person use of the pronoun we or I as he's interacting, actually joining Paul on the missionary journey. So Luke is now actually with Paul in... Um, intro as where he is now kind of seeing what's about to happen play out. And that's actually really important because uh, what's the occupation of Luke? Does anybody know? Doctor. Yes. So Luke is a doctor and that's very important for what we're about to see happen. You would think he would be the best guy on the scene to handle um, a certain circumstance that's about to happen. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, Acts chapter 2, if you go all the way back 18 months ago when we started this, Acts chapter 2, you see that they were gathering together in homes, breaking bread daily. They were committed daily to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the prayers and the breaking of bread. This is their kind of idea, the language that they use when we're talking worship service. We're gathering together to listen to, um, to, to sing, pray through, listen to the word of God as it is proclaimed to us, as it is declared to us in order for us to be transformed by it. But also with that, they would also get together for fellowship where they would share what they called the agape feast or the common meal which was everyone kind of bringing together potluck style bread and foods and fruits in order for them just to share with one another. And then after following that feast, they would then also break bread in the sense of the communion or the Lord's Supper. And so all of this was kind of worked out within their their gathering, their worship gathering. We even see more instruction of that when you see 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as they give an orderly worship. They say, uh, don't necessarily intermingle the communion Lord's table with uh, the rest of the food and drink. Like those, those things need to be separate. And so you kind of see that those are both elements played out within this. And so if you've kind of joined with us within the last three months, we usually do kind of this common meal type thing. On We used to do it on the last Sunday of the month. We're going to be moving it to the first Sunday of the month. Um, and so that'll start in October back up, this idea of common meal where we're just kind of potluck pitch in, um, everybody bringing food for us to just enjoy with one another, uh, to interact with one another following the service so that we can, again, not only be devoted to the apostles' teaching, I'm not saying I'm an apostle, but we're proclaiming the apostles' teaching here, but at the same time being devoted to the fellowship, getting to know one another and being known by one another. So, I'm going to start dubbing it Common Meal because we've been kind of on this, is it pitch-in or potluck? And I'm from the South and it's potluck and your Midwestern folk call it pitch-ins and I don't know. Either way, I like Common Meal. So Common Meal is going to return uh, the first Sunday of October with a chili cook-off. So get excited. And if you've never cooked chili or eaten it, where have you been? Um, Come and enjoy the Lord's Day on that day. Uh, It's going to be a good one. But anyways, I bring that up to mention here that then they were literally gathering daily. This here in Acts chapter 20 is actually about 30 years later um, from that initial Pentecost movement that happened. 
30 years later, uh, culturally, um, all across the board, they've actually moved worship to just the first Sunday or the first day of the week, which is the first Sunday. Um, and this was kind of the rhythm that was played out from here. And it's really important why they moved this. This is actually one of the first areas or the first places in Scripture where we see them move to this. And I also think it's not... Um, it's not coincidence, the event that we're about to see here, and then moving it to the first Sunday or the first day of the week because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ happening on the first Sunday or the first day of the week. And so worship, as far as Jewish synagogues, used to be on the Sabbath, which was our Saturday, according to Roman calendar, which then the Christians moved it to first day of the week, Sunday. And here's where we see that happening. And then they do that weekly on every Sunday. Um, Let's continue reading. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So if they gather, we assume, around sundown, um, or sundown, is that a word? Sundown? Um, yeah, sundown. Uh, they gathered around sundown to get together for worship. Usually, by the Jewish calendar, they marked it sunrise, sundown. Here, they're kind of moving to this kind of like 12-hour um, idea. So six o'clock would kind of be the time that they would gather in this, in this day and age. If we were to say that they did the meal for about two hours and then started this kind of teaching at eight o'clock, he's just given a four-hour sermon. All right. So I only make that point to say for those that give the feedback on the length of sermons, um, you just need to get a little godlier and holier, okay? So... Really nice, yeah. Nice cough over there. Let's keep reading. That's really my only point for that one. Verse 8 There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So context, Paul preaches, boy falls asleep in a windowsill, falls out of it, three stories down, dies. Paul goes down. He's not dead. I'm, ra- I'm bringing him back to life, raises him back to life, and then just goes up and just continues on service as if nothing like out of the norm just happened. Um, continues on, actually goes up. They partake of communion together. They break bread. And then um, he finishes out literally speaking. And, and this time it actually moves more to conversion. So, so uh, kind of going back to that, how long do we do church? Um, Four-hour sermon, raise a kid communion, and then now they do like small group until daybreak. Um, So they're conversing with one another, dialoguing with one another, um, offering questions, feedback. They're just digging into the the word together, literally up until the sun rises. And then from there, Paul leaves and heads out. And so the one thing that I want to see out of this text is not so much just the idea of a of a boy being raised from the dead, um, being raised to life. Because I think for us, 
and, and I think I can say this from kind of a Christian culture perspective. I don't think this idea of being raised from the dead really sits with us in a sense of all, like maybe it should. I think for us it's become so normal to our language when we read scripture or to our Easter celebrations when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I, I think this idea of possessing some type of authority that's able to say to death, you do not have the victory, and to then be able to breathe life into something that was dead, I don't think we're struck with all in that scenario like what we should. And so what I want to do kind of over the next um, 15 to 20 minutes is I want to show us more of the, the why and the how this power and this authority actually comes about and then kind of how that power and authority then relates to us on a daily basis in our daily lives. Because I think, again, for us, this is, this is not just us looking back and saying, wow, how amazing that Paul, with some authority, was able to raise a boy to life. Praise God for that. Now, again, if we were to walk away today with just that, I think that would be a win. Praise God for the authority that he gave Paul to raise a boy back to life. That's amazing. But I want us to see, I want us to truly see from the Old Testament and the New Testament how this idea of resurrection has come about both thousands of years before Jesus and also thousands of years after Jesus what are the implications of resurrection? What is it actually promising for us? What is it actually guaranteeing for us in every area of our lives? Because there's a power here, there's an authority here that I don't think we tap into. And I'll kind of explain what I mean by tap into that. I don't want you to be like, oh, we're about to go charismatic up in here. Like, I, I want you to see what we mean, what we're talking about when we look at authority of resurrection and how God is good and holy and righteous in what he has accomplished. So there's a couple of things um, when we look at the scriptures. Following the original creation of humanity, just, just the creative order, Jesus' resurrection is probably the most decisive event in the history of mankind. It's the most decisive event in the entire history of of mankind, which means the entire history of mankind hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like everything is literally defined by the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it is bringing in the dawning of the new creation. It's literally ushering in an authority over death, evil, and sin. Which again is not only going to have implications for us as sinners, but it's going to have implications for us as saints. It's going to provide for us a certain level of authority and power over death, evil, and sin that we possess because we have been resurrected with Christ. Or that his identity is within us as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17. That he who knew no sin became sin in order that us would become his righteousness. 
He took on our unrighteousness to give us his righteousness. His righteousness is a certain level of power that's able to then resurrect him, bring him back to life. It validates that those who are in Christ are no longer imprisoned under sin, the payment for which is death. So we're able to live through life knowing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has defeated death, evil, and sin, and because that identity now resides within us, gives us our own authority, power, and defeat over death, evil, and sin. And one of the things that we see in the New Testament is the New Testament is clear that the Scriptures foresaw this. That the scriptures told this. So anytime you see, and specifically you see this in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, when he's, return, when he's um, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul's always saying that it was within accordance with the scriptures. Now he's not talking about New Testament scriptures. He's writing the New Testament when he's saying these things. When, whenever the New Testament refers to in accordance with the Scriptures, it's usually referring to in accordance with the Old Testament law. It's referring to the Old Testament canon. It's referring to Genesis to Malachi. It's referring, referring to those Scriptures that Jesus is using and alluding to when he is saying these Scriptures testified to what is about to happen. Or Paul saying what did happen those scriptures testified to those, brought it about, prophesied in regards to it. We see this in, in several different passages. We see in um, John chapter 5, as John is writing, he's actually uh, giving or alluding to Dan Daniel chapter 12, declaring that there's an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So John alluding to Daniel is saying that there is coming an event. That that event is going to provide a resurrection of everybody who's dead. And that resurrection of everybody who's dead, depending on the identity within that person... They're either going to be resurrected to life because of their identity that is righteous, or they're going to be resurrected to an identity of death because of their evil, because of their sin that's not been dealt with at the cross. In Acts, both Peter and Paul identify that Psalm 16, 10 through 11 foretold Christ's resurrection. After citing Psalm 16:10, they say, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter stressed of David that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So Peter is literally giving a sermon in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 saying that what David said in Psalm 16 isn't just about David crying out, please do not let my soul go to Hades, please do not my soul perish, but rather it was actually David alluding to the fact that when Jesus died, his soul would not go to Hades and his soul would not perish, but rather he would be resurrected. This is a foreshadowing. This is a David proclaiming of the future event that would have for him a present reality. A lot of times people ask, like, how do people in the Old Testament get saved versus people in the New Testament? Where, like, we have the full narrative of Jesus. Like, we have Jesus coming and fulfilling all of the Old Testament and fulfilling all of our righteousness, earning everything for us. If they didn't have Jesus yet in the future, how do they get saved? 
And it's the exact same way. They looked forward, we looked back. They looked ahead for a Messiah who was going to come earn everything for them. We look back to a Messiah who's already earned everything for us. And therefore, having faith in that and having trust in that and having belief in that is what provides for us the righteousness that Jesus came and purchased. When we say that the cross of Jesus Christ is the hinge of all history, means that it literally vindicates sinners from the very beginning to the very end. The reason why when God looked at Adam and Eve in their sin and did not immediately kill them is because of the future work of Jesus Christ. And you can say that over and over and over. You can say that about Moses when he goes and murders a man in cold blood before he actually goes and does the work of leading the Israelites in the Exodus. When you look at David, a man after God's own heart, who sees a woman bathing on a a rooftop and wants to figure out a way in which he can get to her, has her husband go out into the front lines of battle, gets killed and slaughtered, and then he goes over and takes over his wife by committing adultery. Like, this is David. How come David doesn't immediately die in that moment if Jesus hasn't come yet? It's because there's a future reality that has a present meaning for him, a present reality. There's faith in Jesus in the future, just like we have faith in Jesus in the past. The Old Testament is testifying to these things. We see in 1 Corinthians, it recalls both Isaiah and Hosea to stress for the church in Corinth that there's a certainty of their hope for resurrection. It says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Isaiah and Hosea, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So here you have, in 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul looking at both Isaiah and Hosea when it's talking about kind of this death, like there's just this this pride in them. There's this confidence in them. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death, you cannot do anything to me because we are looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're looking at a resurrection that was literally able to take the wages of sin, which is death, and be placed on a person to which he is then killed, absorbing the wrath of God, there is then a power and a work of righteousness that is resurrecting him to have power over death. So death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Like, there's a sting for a lot of us in this room right now because we're getting older. Like I always say, if you've hit 27, you're starting to feel it. If you've not hit 27, you haven't yet. But for a lot of us who have, who have gone beyond 27, like we get hurt sleeping now. Like there's just the reality. There's a sting of death that is slowly like our plane's landing. Like it's just, this is how it's working out for us. 
But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're able to have hope. And I'm actually getting a little ahead of myself, the application here. But we actually have this hope that this isn't it for us. Now, I'm not like, I'm not anti like exercising and like I ran 0.8 miles this last week. Like I'm, I'm all about getting some runs in. Like, come on, guys. Like I'm not, but yes, like it's, you're like, oh my, he's finally getting some exercise in. Um, but no, like there's this reality, like I want to do, like I want to eat healthy and I want to every once in a while run, like I want to work out, I want to do those things. But there's a reality that I know I'm aging, I'm heading towards death. But I have a hope in that process that that's not my end for me. I have a hope in that process that I know that there's going to be a glorified body that's not going to break down, that's not going to age, that's not going to... Like, I, I'm, I've got full confidence in this uh, option of being able to teleport when that thing happens. I'm excited about that. I don't know if it'll actually happen for us, but it says Jesus walked into rooms without door. Like, like I'm excited about what Jesus did and the body that I get to have because of this reality of resurrection. That's a rant. I want you to see something else here. The New Testament is so in tune with Old Testament prophecies and realities that they keep talking about this idea of the third day resurrection. The third day resurrection. And what I want to show you here in the Old Testament, because these are kind of what, what they refer to in theology as, as typologies. Typologies aren't necessarily where it says like, on the third day, he's going to raise again. There are moments where we see that. But there are also other stories and narratives of the Old Testament that are alluding to this idea of a third day resurrection. And what I love about this is that we actually get to see Jesus not only just fulfilling specific texts like Isaiah 53 that's talking about the suffering servant that are so clearly the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But there's also other things with the Exodus and with Jonah and the well and these other stories that Jesus is fulfilling in the person and work of his life and his death and his resurrection that is producing for us a greater confidence in God's plan and will that he has worked out every detail in every aspect of our lives for us to have victory over death, evil, and sin. And so that's what I want to show you in some of these things. The first one that I want to see, and I'm actually kind of going to work this um, back to front through the canon. I've got five, uh, maybe four. I've got four different examples I want to show you from the Old Testament alluding to this idea of a third day resurrection. First, Jesus paralleled his own coming resurrection with Jonah's resurrection-like deliverance from the belly of the fish. He says in Matthew chapter 12, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus literally is just reading the Jonah story typologically here. He's seeing it as both pointing to his exaltation through trial and clarifying how his resurrection would signal salvation through judgment. So there's several things happening here. Why is Jonah in the fish? Because he's rebelling. He's sinning. 
So it's through the trial of Jonah being swallowed up in the fish that he's literally being judged. And after three days and three nights in this fish, he's then spit out as if it's some type of like resurrection to new life, to new reality, where the judgment's been paid. And then now he's, being, he's, he's literally able to come back into the work of the Lord. And Jesus is looking back at this and he's saying, what I'm about to experience is like this. Except I'm the greater Jonah. I'm the greater Jonah. Second, building off of what was already noted in Hosea, Hosea declared that the end of Israel's exile would be like a resurrection after three days. He says in Hosea 6, 1 through 3, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. And now just, when I read this, think about the resurrection. Think about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Like, that's amazing to me. This is the exile of Israel. And as they have been exiled and now are being brought back to the Lord, it's kind of like the separation between Jesus and God in order for the death to happen. And then the death happens. He's now bringing them back in as he is resurrecting them so that they would know the Lord, be back in relationship with the Lord. Third, Christ portrays his death as a baptism in Luke chapter 12. And the New Testament authors portray the judgments of both the flood and the Red Sea as baptisms. We see that in 1 Peter and we see that in 1 Corinthians 10. Because the initial Passover sacrifice... So think back to when Israel is um, enslaved to the Egyptians. And we're going through the plagues... And Moses is trying, he's going back and forth to Pharaoh, trying to get the people freed. We have an interesting thing that happens. We have the Passover night, the first Passover. And this is when God instructs the people, I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to put it over the doorpost. And this is going to be a sign for me to pass over those children that are within your household so that I don't kill them, but I'm going to go kill the other children of the Egyptians. So he's providing salvation through a sacrifice in order to then bring out the people of the Exodus. Now, we talk about in Christian language that being brought into the Christian um, community to become a believer is kind of through this process of baptism. Think about Matthew chapter 28, Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have something really interesting happening here in the Exodus is when they are finally freed and they're kind of leaving Egypt and they're heading out and they get to the Red Sea. It's on the third day of their Exodus that they are actually brought through the Red Sea. And as it says in 1 Corinthians, this Red Sea was like a baptism for the people where they are brought through. Death is swallowed up in the Red Sea. Because death was chasing them in the sign of the Egyptians. They are brought through and now resurrected as a new nation. Marked by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Jesus. 
It is all focusing on Jesus and specifically the resurrection of the third day as they are brought through in their baptism. Fourth, it was on the third day of his journey to sacrifice his son that Abraham promised his servants in Genesis 22, 4 through 5. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now again, this is Abraham. God's given him a charge. This is Abraham. that He's, he's the father of the Jewish nation. He's been given a charge that I'm going to have you um, sacrifice your son Isaac, whom I've also provided for you as the means by which there's going to be a ton of nations that are going to be blessed by Jesus Christ. So let me get this straight. If I'm Abraham, you've promised that I'm going to have a sea of offspring. And you've given me one offspring And you want me to now go kill him? Yes. Go on the camping trip. So he literally goes on the camping trip and he's going with this mentality of, I'm I'm faithful. I'm going to do this. And he's so faithful, it says in Hebrews, that when he got there, and this is on the third day of their journey, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, He's so confident in the original promise that God has given him about having a multitude of offspring that he says, I and the boy will go over there to the sacrifice and I and the boy will return. Which is him seeing that even if he goes through with the sacrifice and kills his son Isaac, that there will be some type of resurrection happening in order for Isaac to come back to life and to come back with his father so that the promise of God can be fulfilled. I mean, that's, that's faith. That's confidence. That's trust. That's not me looking at God saying, God, are you changing your mind? No, it's God has a will and a plan and a decree, and he's already told me it. And whenever he tells it to me, I can take it to the bank as a guarantee. So whatever else you might say that might sound contrary to it, I'm trusting your promise. And though I might go through with this, and we actually see here it play out that he doesn't sacrifice his son, but God provides a ram for him in the thicket as the sacrifice, as the substitutionary sacrifice for his own son, that we actually see the full picture play out that God is going to send his own son as the substitutionary sacrifice for us. And that on three days, he will raise him. So what is the invitation for us in light of this truth? Because it's being declared throughout the entire Old Testament. It's being declared in the New Testament. We're seeing it play out. I mean, this isn't the first time that someone was raised from the dead outside of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. We saw Peter raise someone from the dead. We saw Jesus himself raise Lazarus from the dead. We saw multiple aspects of this happening. That authority and that power is ultimately coming from this promise that God has for us Every single day that he is greater than death, evil, and sin. That he is the author of life. 
that he has the means necessary in order to give us authority as he did Paul here. I'm not saying like, I'm not saying go straight to the next cemetery and start trying to raise people from the dead, but he's given us authority over sin to be able to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. This is the greatest implication for us is because he's giving us these stories here where literally, if, if you're kind of working it based on an equation route, you've got temptation which gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. He's telling us, hey, um, don't be worried at any level of those. I'm more powerful than it. Are you worried about death? You've seen me resurrect people. You've seen me resurrect Jesus ultimately, which is the one that gave the power to resurrect anybody. So not only are we giving these little one-off resurrections, but ultimately there will be a resurrection of everybody. And at that resurrection, they will either come into heaven because of them trusting in Jesus Christ and being identified with him, or they'll be resurrected to judgment. But there will be a resurrection of everybody. So death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death, we're not worried about you. So then let's move into sin. Sin is a reality that we all struggle with daily probably. And if you haven't figured it out, just start journaling. Or ask someone that you're in relationship with. Do I sin? They've probably journaled about it already. <laughs> they, they've got a list. They've been waiting for the day for you to ask that question. So we all deal with sin. We all struggle. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 40 years now or you've been a Christian for four months now. We struggle with sin. The Apostle Paul, who we look at as one of the greats of the greats when it comes to trusting in Christ and understanding his abiding relationship and in Jesus and having, I mean, just some of the best theology that's out there. Like, we look at the Apostle Paul and we think, hey, man, if I, only I could be like him. And yet Paul is writing himself, man, the thing I hate, I continue to do. The thing I love, I don't do. He's essentially saying, I want to worship, but I choose sin. I hate that I choose that. He's warring within himself this conflicting reality of flesh that is still among us. And this also growing sanctification, this identity that we have in Jesus Christ that is righteous. But we're not fully glorified yet. So we still have this flesh that we're dealing with, that we're wrestling with. That's causing us, that's pushing us, that's giving us desires to sin. But what he's saying and what he's guaranteeing for us in the resurrection, in the identity of Jesus Christ, is you've got these conflicting desires within you to sin, but I have a greater desire. This is why Paul is so frustrated, is because he knows his greater desire is to worship to adore Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to extol Jesus, to pursue Jesus, to 
abide in Jesus, to obey Jesus, to literally fill his mind with as many scriptures as possible, to meditate on them, to memorize them, to sleep with them. Like if he had a choice between eating a good meal or reading a chapter, he's going to read the chapter. Because that's where his greater desire is because of Jesus Christ inside him. But he knows he's still wrestling. And what he's giving us today is he's being able to tell us, um, death, where's your sting? We're not worried about you. Sin, because of Jesus Christ, we're actually not worried about you either. We actually possess the power to say no to you and yes to Jesus. I really think that's our biggest challenge, is believing that. I really do. How many times do we justify what we've done that's wrong? How many times do we just say, well, that's just the flesh talking, or that's just my, I'm just not perfect yet, or I'm still, I don't know enough scripture, I don't pray enough, I don't do X, Y, and Z. Like, I, I just, we're giving excuses For not trusting in the identity that gives us the authority to say no to it. And so we just continue walking through life hoping that we're going to get better and and continue to grow in one degree of glory to the next. Continue to become more like Jesus one day after another. We hope that happens. But we actually don't tap into the power and authority that actually on a daily basis allows us to grow. And then there's the temptation piece. Temptation leads to sin, sin leads to death. So let's look at temptation. We haven't sinned yet. We're just being tempted around us. As it says, the enemy, literally the only thing the enemy can do, and when I say enemy, I'm referring to Satan, I'm referring to demons, I'm referring to flesh, I'm referring to um, your old way of life, I'm referring to anything and everything that is not honoring Jesus. The enemy, the only thing the enemy can do is put an offer in front of you. It can't make you do anything. It just puts the offer in front of you. All the enemy can do is distract us from Jesus. It has no power over us. And this is why I love that Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the kingdom. Deliver us to the kingdom. Lead us not into temptation. What, what Jesus is telling us to do is literally tap into God and his plan for us on a daily basis that as we are trusting him, as we are placing our lives over into his hands, that God, you would direct us through your spirit, that you would direct us through the life that we see in Jesus Christ, that you would direct us through the will that we see in the Father that he has given throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, that as we see all these things, that you would direct and guide us not into temptation that the evil that the, that the enemy is trying to provide for us, but that you would deliver us from that and place us in a kingdom that is going to be fully for your glory and our satisfaction. 
Because all the enemy is going to do is kind of like the clickbait on the internet. It's just pop-ups. It's like these little things like, come here, this is going to satisfy you. Come over here, this is going to be like really... I watched Wreck-It Ralph this last week, Breaks the Internet. All the little pop-up things. Like, Anyways, if you haven't seen it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But it's just the annoying pop-ups of just life. Like, do this. This is going to be instantly gratifying for you. Although the reality is it's eternally damning you. We need to look at all of our culture, all of our realities, all of our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our choices, everything that we're doing through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say he holds the authority and the power over temptation, over sin, and over death. That should, for us, provide a confidence to get up in the morning and to pray to the Lord and to meditate in his word and to sit at his feet and to treasure Jesus above all things. First and foremost, because of who he is. And secondly, because of the implications that he has on our daily lives. Jesus, I'm able to walk through this life today knowing that there are going to be pop-ups that are coming at me. I know that there are going to be conflicting desires that I have, and I want you to lead me away from those things because of your authority and your power. I want to trust that, and I've got confidence in that. I want victory over that. And Jesus, I know I can have victory over that because I've seen it in your word. I've seen it in your word. I mean, a boy fell out of a third-story window and died. And the Apostle Paul, mid-service, like, I would love to see this happen in one of our services. Not a boy die. But, like, I would just love to see some kind of, like, miraculous thing like this happen that just builds for us confidence. I mean, they go back up to the room after raising this boy to the, back to life, and they just continue conversing. We want more of the authority and power that's coming from this. Let's break bread then. That's where the power and authority comes from. I love that that was literally the thing that they did next was take communion. Y'all want to know how I did that? Let's go take communion. So let's take communion. Because here's the reality for us. The communion table is not something that we just engage in from a mental or emotional or spiritual um, act on our part. It's something we receive. We receive communion from the Lord. It's something that he's inaugurated for us to find hope in, that he has already paid the penalty for everything that's robbing us of ultimate joy and satisfaction. When we choose to fall into temptation, when we choose to sin and our wages of that is death, Jesus is saying, come to me and receive what I've already paid. I've already poured out my life. I've already broken my body. And I've already shed my blood. So receive my offer on the table that through the breaking of my body and the shedding of my blood, I'm giving you forgiveness. 
I'm giving you the removal of your sins. I'm giving you the removal of your shame and your guilt that you're walking through on a daily basis because you you were tempted and you sinned. And even that shame and that guilt that we wrestle with on a daily basis that's keeping us from praying because we think God's mad at us or it keeps us from reading his word because we think we're not smart enough to understand it or or intellectual enough to be able to dive in and figure out what is going on in there. Like there's so many things that are keeping us from Jesus and he's saying at the table, I've purchased everything. There's nothing that will separate you from me. So come to me and find rest. Come to me and get authority. Come to me and get power. Come to me. And so we want to come to him and break bread and drink the juice in remembrance of his sacrifice. And this isn't, this isn't a table that we come to to just kind of beat ourselves over with. But it's a table that we come to with assurance and confidence that even though he died because of us, he rose to give God the ultimate glory in redeeming us so that, so that, we would experience the fellowship of God for the rest of our eternity. This is resurrection, power, and authority. And it's through the means of the cross that he's accomplished it. And so if you'll go ahead and stand. I just want us to be encouraged as Paul finished out 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? If the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing, that's a confidence, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You being here today singing songs about Jesus, participating in prayer to Jesus, listening to words preached from the scriptures that testify to Jesus. None of this is in vain because of what he's accomplished for us. You merely participating in this worship service, this gathering, is him transforming you from one degree of glory to the next. It's making you more like his son Jesus, and we can have confidence in that. When we go and receive communion in just a second, when we receive that communion, it's the Lord preaching and proclaiming over our lives that I've removed your shame, I've removed your guilt, I've removed your sin, I've removed all of that. You are free. Receive my love and my grace and my mercy. Receive it. And we worship. I mean, what left is there for us to do other than worship? We worship.
So let's worship now by partaking of communion, participating in it, receiving it. And then the band's gonna finish out with a song. And let's just through that song get after Jesus as our king, our king. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at